Well, welcome again to our Christmas Eve service here at Door Creek. We are so glad that you're here. Maybe you've uh, traveled from out of town to be with family or friends. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, and thanks for celebrating Christmas with us. Uh, I would like to say a, a welcome to those of you who are watching across the way in the chapel, as well in the overflow room in the activity center. Good to be with you as well. So one of the things that we love to do around here is uh, called Advent Conspiracy. So it's our commitment to each other to not get crazy about Christmas, meaning just the materialistic side of Christmas. And so we commit to spending less on ourselves so that we would be in a position actually to give more to people in need and in that have the opportunity to show God's love, our love for all people, to keep the focus on Christ. And so we've had some exciting projects that we're gonna be supporting. We're gonna give out a bunch, 30% of the offerings going to our Achievement Gap grants right here in our own city to help the kids who are on the wrong side of that gap. We've got some great partners nationally down in New Orleans, Urban Impact, as well as out in South Dakota, Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, as well as partnerships in Africa, Mozambique, Monrovia, Liberia, and in Honduras. And so I wanna just give a big shout out to the church family to say, through your generosity combined, over $102,000 has come in for Advent Conspiracy. That's a big shout out. So uh, that means we can do a lot of good uh, to a lot of people in great need. And so thanks for being part of that. If you missed out last weekend, you can still give online. There's probably even an extra Advent Conspiracy envelope on your way out at the offering boxes. So um, I'm a list guy. I call myself hardcore. You know you're a hardcore list person when you actually get something done that wasn't on the list and you write it on the list only to cross it out because it feels so good. You see, I know. I'm with friends here. And what I, what, what I know happens all the time is I overestimate how much I can get done in a day. I do that all the time, which means I'm always underestimating how long projects take. Now, we, one of the things Lori and I love to do, my wife Lori, is uh, we love to do projects around the house. So I, you know, I, when I get a project going, I've got my legal pad out and I'm writing on all the steps and then I'll say, and I think it's gonna take this much time and I think it's gonna cost this much money. And I always break the true rules of home improvement and construction. It's gonna cost more, take more time, right? I'm all, you could double my estimates and I would still be shy of reality. I underestimate things all the time. Let me give you some categories. I underestimate hard things in my life and what it's gonna take to work through those. So 10 years ago, a really big deal, hard time in my life. I catch up with a friend, his name is Doug. Doug says, Mark, this is a big deal. He says, this is gonna take you a couple of years to work through. I said, Doug, you don't know me. Man, I, I, I forgive quickly and I move on fast. Oh man, it was more than two years. I underestimate things. I underestimate the past, the challenges of the past. Lori and I have five kids, raising five kids. I romanticize the past. I go, it was, it was simple, it was easy. It's like the guy who's telling his friend in front of his wife how easy her delivery was. And she's looking and going, were you in the same hospital? <laughs> easy is not the right word. I underestimate my shortcomings, my blind spots. 
my weaknesses. I underestimate the power of my words, both positively and negatively. I'm constantly underestimating my everyday need of God in my life. His wisdom, his strength, his grace. And when I realize I underestimate God's love for me all the time, that's what I want to talk about this Christmas Eve, Christmas 2000. I want us to think about Christmas with a new word. It's the word extravagant. Because Christmas points to God's extravagant love. It's a great word, extravagant. It comes from the Latin. Extra means outside. Vagare, if I don't speak Latin, you've helped me out later. It means uh, to wander, to wander outside. When Webster works through the dictionary, he says God's love is like this, exceeding the limits of reason or necessity, lacking in moderation, balance, and restraint, God's love extremely or excessively elaborate, God's love. Spending much more than necessary, God's love, extremely or unreasonably high in price. God's love for you. God's love for us, in a word, extravagant. It exceeds the limits of human understanding. There's no restraint, no holding back to his love. The cost beyond measure his love beyond our wildest imagination. The Bible describes God's love in John 3, 16 with these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The rhythm goes like this in the verse, God loved, God gave, we believe, we find life. We live. The first sign of God's extravagant love in John 3.16 is who he loves. It says that he loved the world. We're expecting he loves Israel, his chosen people. He loves the people that love God. No, it says that the world, all humanity, specifically in the context of John chapter 3, the world is referencing a group of people who are opposed to God, who reject his son, who's come in his name to point the way to God. He loves the world, even those who oppose him. Nan is writing this letter to God. It goes like this, dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family and I can never do it. If God loved the world, friend, he loves you and me. Let me just say that again. If God loved the world, it means he loves you. He loves me. And if God is God, that means his love is perfect. If God is God, that means his love is unchanging. If God is God, that means, like God, it's eternal, never ending. That means that there's never been a minute, there's never been a second, not even a nanosecond of your life when God did not love you. That's unbelievable. He loves you right now as much as he ever has, as he ever will love you. There's nothing that you've done that you could do where God says, you know, I I don't love you anymore. Or I love you a little less than I used to. There's nothing that you and I could do more of that would cause God to love us more. That's even wilder. He loves us with a perfect love because he is love. 
His love isn't calibrated like ours. It's not conditional like ours. He loves because he made us and he made us because he loves us. We're loved. So then why is it that we don't feel so often that God loves us? So um, is it possible that maybe for some of us, the category is we're just unsure there's a God, so how could I be sure that he loves me because I don't even know if he exists? Okay. Some of us are just unaware. I love the line in Michelle in her story when she said, life just kind of got in the way. The busyness of life, the successes of life, they, they just do that. They creep up. We're distracted, looking for love in the wrong places, forgetting that actually we were made by God for God, a loving relationship. Some of us, we've been duped, we've been tricked, we've actually been deceived by people, maybe parents, maybe religious leaders, maybe a friend. I don't know if they were a friend. They said to us, there is no way that God could ever love you anymore because of what you've done. And man, we could just smell the hypocrisy at the time. But come to think of it, we've been just believing that lie that because of what we've done in the past, there's actually no way that God could ever love me. A lot of times the reason we don't feel like God loves us is because our feelings, man, they're tricky things. They're fickle things. They don't always lead us to truth. They don't always lead us to true conclusions about God and his care and love for us. So think about it. If this year you lost your job, if you suffered injustice, it would be really easy for us to say, I don't feel like God loves me. If you had your reputation tarnished or worse, trashed, it's easy to feel that way. You were betrayed by a close friend, maybe a spouse, gone through a messy divorce. It's easy to feel like, I don't think God loves me. You're dealing with a health issue, maybe life-threatening something that you desperately need to stop doing, but you can't. You feel like maybe God doesn't love me. You're experiencing loss, a financial reversal. You're surrounded by people, but extremely lonely. And, and your feelings are bringing you to this conclusion. God doesn't love me because the pain is so real. And the pain and those feelings that shout out redefine God's character and reality to get us to believe that God really doesn't love us. And so what we have to do is tie down those fickle feelings to the bedrock truth. And Jesus says, God's word is where we find that truth. And John 3.16 reminds us that he loves us because he loved the world. And that proclamation of his love, that declaration is followed up by the proof. The proof in the pudding that he loves us is that he demonstrated through giving his son, which wasn't just giving him up from being in heaven with him, where he'd always enjoyed this eternal relationship with the son, but giving his son to us where he would give up his life so that we could live. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, his best loved son for you and me, demonstrating his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So about seven years ago, Thomas Vanderwood, he was a retired Navy pilot 17 years in the Navy, a Vietnam vet, 
a commercial airline pilot who'd retired. He and Mary Ellen, his wife, raised seven sons, and he was still caring for Joseph. Joseph was his Down syndrome son. Uh, The two were inseparable. He had a pet name for Joe. He called him Josie. And when you saw one, you saw the other. So they lived on a farm out in Maryland. And one day, Thomas and his son Joseph were taking down the family pool, draining out all the water, taking it apart. And they were in a part of the yard that they didn't normally walk around. And Josie walked backwards and he stepped on a metal cover of the septic tank and it broke through and Joseph fell in the septic tank. It's unbelievable. Full of muck. Mary Ellen runs in the house and calls 911. They're far off in the country. That paramedics aren't going to get there for 15, 20 minutes. So Thomas is reaching in through that manhole and trying to grab a hold of his son, Josie, and get him out. And he can't get him out. And he can't hold him up out of it. And so he jumps in to the tank. And he gets under his son and he lifts him up, keeping his head above all that which was in there. When the paramedics came, they pulled Joseph out, covered in all that muck. He lived. When they pulled out his dad, Thomas, he was gone. They tried working on him, reviving him. They rushed him to the hospital where he was pronounced dead on arrival. His daughter-in-law, Mary Ann, said that's how he lived sacrificing his life, everything for his family. His favorite job was the one he did last, being a good dad, giving up his life to save his son. That's how it goes. That's what we expect. Dads, we get that. Moms, we get that. We would do anything to save our child's life. And so we're blown away that God would send his son to die. And that Christ would leave the comforts of his relationship with the Father and the Spirit and all of the angelic beings in that perfect place and dive down through the cosmos into this place that compared to heaven is a little bit like that tank, isn't it? And I'm wondering if that's where some of us are right now. Feeling like we're going under. Feeling like we can't get out. Trapped, longing for a better day. Christmas reminds us that Jesus Christ came to rescue us. To lift us up. Out of the muck of this world. Today. Not just to beam us out of here one day to the new heaven and the new earth. To live a beautiful life in a broken world today through his strength. So maybe you wonder, so should we worship a God like that? Because you know, a dad lets his son get killed, we lock him up, throw away the key. We remember the Christmas story and the story of Jesus doesn't end on the cross. Yes, he was born in that manger in Bethlehem to die on that cross outside of Jerusalem. But that's not the end of the story. And on the cross, God shouts to us, I love you. I sent my son to die in your place to restore the relationship you were made from, 
made for. And then three days later, we remember that God, the Father, never stopped loving the Son, but raised him up on the third day as he conquered death, the grave, all that separated us from God and the enemy. John makes it clear, Jesus is not just a man. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is God's son, fully God, fully man. When John writes about Jesus at the beginning of his gospel, he uses the word, word, as a metaphor to describe what Jesus is like. He's like this word that communicates to us what God is like. And this is what he writes. In the beginning was the word, was Jesus. And the word Jesus was with God, and the word Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Then in verse 14, the word became flesh. Christ took on human flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, John says, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace, God's goodness, and full of truth. Friend, do you believe that God loves you and demonstrated that love powerfully by sending his Son at Christmas to die on Good Friday? Christmas teaches us that we're loved, that you're loved. I don't know what tape is playing in your mind, but God wants to give you a new tape that I love you in Christ and that you need him. You need a savior, someone to rescue. You cannot do it on your own. It's not about being a good person. It's not about putting together a religious pedigree or resume. It's not about having strong convictions and strong faith. It is about resting in the only hope for humanity. For God is the perfect father. And Jesus cried on the cross for another way. There was no other way. But to have Jesus Christ, God's son, fully God, fully man, be born and die for you and me. Maybe you two have Bible lying around. Maybe you've never opened a Bible. Here's my challenge this Christmas. This is new to you. It is to read one of the shortest accounts of Christ's life in the Gospel of Mark. Take you a little over an hour. If you don't have a Bible, grab the YouVersion app for your smartphone, your tablet. You can get it online. And I love reading my Bible on my phone. I use the YouVersion all the time. Read through from start to end the Gospel of Mark, asking your the asking yourself the question, who is this Jesus? Is he who he claimed to be? Or literally, is he some kind of nutcase? Because that's the only two options we have. He's a liar. He's a nutcase. I guess the third is, he is who he said he is. God's son, our savior. So Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And anything you're chasing and everything you're chasing and every hole that you're trying to fill, he's the only one that fills it. And he fills it to the full. May you know that fullness to the extravagant love of God that came wrapped in human flesh, God's son, 
our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, help us not to underestimate your extravagant love for us, the cost of it, our need for it, and the power of your love to change us and to change this world. Father God, thank you for loving us. Christ, for dying for us. Quiet us with your love. Fill us with your love that we might be people who find joy like you, Jesus, in giving our lives away for the good of others. Until you come or call us home, fill us with your love. In Christ's name, amen.